the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Because we bear His image and His likeness in that we have a spirit. And that spirit will live forever and is able to commune with Him in ways that the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom cannot. You and I have the ability to live forever because our spirit will go to be with the Lord if we know Christ as our Savior. And He has created us in His image. But the point that He's saying here is, listen, if the coin bears the image of Caesar, then you need to give it to Caesar. But if you bear the image of God... You need to give your life to God. Have you fully surrendered your life to the Lord? In today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you the importance of laying down your life for Christ. You were made on purpose, for a purpose. God made humankind in His image. You have a spirit that can commune with God, unlike the plant and animal kingdoms. You were meant and created to live in communion with God. Pastor Gary encourages you to not hold anything back. Give your life completely to your Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 11, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The Romans saw Caiaphas as the legitimate high priest. The people saw Annas as the legitimate high priest. And between them, they were running a bazaar. It was a bizarre bazaar, okay? And the bazaar was this, that they turned the temple court area into a, a place of opportunity to gouge the people for the sake of lining their own pockets financially. And what would happen is, if you came from a distant area to Jerusalem for the time of the feast, for any of the major feasts, you would have to first exchange your coinage for the temple coins. Because you would come as part of the Roman Empire with either Greek or Roman coins that would bear the, the image of an emperor or a person or a figure or a god or a goddess on your coin. Well, that's considered money that is idolatrous. You have the image of Caesar on that coin. So that's no good here at the temple. So you need to exchange your heathen money for better money. And when they would do that, the money changers would then rip you off. You brought five bucks to get exchanged. Uh, you'd only get back two bucks worth of the temple money. So they would profit that way. Then you'd have to take your temple money and go buy a lamb. Because if you're coming from another distant region, you don't want to be dragging lamb chops all the way to Jerusalem. So you're just going to show up there and you're going to buy a lamb there in Jerusalem. Well, now a lamb that you might have otherwise bought where you live is going to be like four or five times the price in Jerusalem. 
So you get ripped off coming and going. The money that you exchange, they're going to rip you off. Then you're going to take the money that you just got in a lesser exchange, and you're going to buy a land that's like four or five times the price. And the people behind this was Caiaphas and Annas. Because this was a way they could line their own pockets. You read some Bible commentaries, and it says that Caiaphas made as much as, in our modern terms, $3 million a year. $3 million a year by ripping off the people like this. That's what Jesus is upset about. You have turned the house of God into this merchandise bazaar as a way to just make you filthy rich, taking advantage of God's people to make yourselves filthy rich. Stuff hasn't changed much. we got to open up our eyes and realize that even today, sadly, in some circles of the body of Christ, uh, people are taking advantage of other people to line their own pockets and make themselves uh, filthy rich. And that's what's going on here with Caiaphas and Annas. And what Jesus doesn't like here is the way that they've turned what should be a house of prayer and a house of praise into a den of robbers and thieves where people are just ripping off other people for the sake of making themselves rich. So... Verse 20, keep reading. In the morning, so they went out of the city that evening. In the morning, verse 20, as they went along, they saw the fig tree with withered from the roots. Notice that. It's withering from the bottom up. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now this is... uh an important verse, all of, all of the Bible is, but uh, this is a verse that is some, somewhat difficult to, to understand because by itself, verse 24, therefore I tell you whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours by itself. Wow, uh, sounds like a blank check, but you always have to measure Scripture with Scripture and you have to understand context and you have to understand what Jesus says here in light of other things that he said and other things that the Bible says. This is not a blank check. This is not God saying, just ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you any more than if your child asks for something that you're just going to give him or her whatever they want. A good parent doesn't always give their kids necessarily what they ask for because it may not be good for them. So we need to understand this is not a blank check. We don't get what we ask if, number one, we ask with wrong motives. James tells us clearly in James 4.3, he says, first, you have not because you ask not, but secondly, you have not because you ask with wrong motives that you might get what you want and spend it on your own pleasures. In other words, if we just ask God to give us what we want for selfish reasons alone, we may not always get it. And James makes that clear. Not every answer to prayer is going to result in you and me getting what we want if it has selfish motives at the root of it. And the second thing we need to understand is that it says in 1 John 5.14 that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Sometimes we ask things and it's not God's will. But we don't know, so we should always ask. But we have to always defer to our Father. He has the final say in everything. 
and uh, he gets the last word, and there are just some things that as our father, he knows are good for us or not, and there are some things according to his will or not. Now, I know some people who say, well, you know, I just say, you know, we should just, you know, claim it and pray it and believe it, and it's going to happen, and, you know, Mark eleven twenty four. hey, but you have to also look at the balance of Scripture, and God says there in 1 John five fourteen that not everything is my will, so we have to be careful. Prayer is, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. God has given us this wonderful ability to commune with him and to connect with him through prayer. And yet Jesus says, my father knows what you need even before you ask. And still he tells us to pray. Now God already knows what I need before I ask. Well, then why should I pray? We can dismiss everything and just resign ourselves to thinking, well, prayer is not even needful. If God knows what I need anyway, why should I even pray? And yet he tells us to pray. And prayer, a lot of times, is not so much me getting what I want, but me having a heart change to align myself with the will and purpose of God. And what God will do in my life through prayer will often amaze me, but I have to always be willing to defer to His will because He always has my best interest at heart. And what I think is good for me is not always what my Father thinks is good for me, and He's not obligated to just perform on demand. Some people think that prayer is just, you know, obligating God to do what they want, and I'm going to say it in faith and quote Mark eleven twenty four. But we have to always remember that God is God. And there are some things that just in His infinite wisdom, He will do in ways that we don't always understand or comprehend in this lifetime. But He's still God, and He's still sovereign, and He's still Lord. Now, we should always continue to pray and to ask and to be persistent in our prayer life. You know, ask, seek, and knock. Ask, and even in the Greek, it, it, it's in the present imperative, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. And so we are told in Scripture to be persistent in prayer, to not give up, to continue to to approach the throne of grace with faith and to believe and, and to persist, uh, but always allowing God the final result. Now, this whole idea about moving mountains, look, this is a Hebrew idiom. So to us, it sounds literal, like, I just want to, you know, move the Catoctin Mountain, and I'm just going to believe by faith it'll be thrown into the Potomac. That's not what he's saying. It's a Hebrew idiom. A mountain is an expression of something that seems impossible. Something that seems impossible. The bottom line for what he's saying here is this, that this is a lesson about faith and prayer that God can do the impossible. That's the reminder. That's the lesson that there are certain mountains in our own lives that just seem impossible. But we need to believe that God is able to do the impossible, pray, and leave the results to Him. But don't stop praying. Believe that He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could hope or imagine, and trust that the end result is the best because God is God and He's on the throne. Everybody understand this? And so He's encouraging us to believe, to pray, that God can do the impossible, leave the final results to Him. And he attaches this one part here. It's very interesting. In verse 25, he says, when you stand praying, notice that, the posture is not always, you know, kneeling and, you know, and putting your hands together and, you know, here, here's the people, here's the steeple, you know, all this, you know, whatever that is. It, but it can be even standing praying. But, but look, the, the heart of it is, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. That what he indicates to us is that unforgiveness can hinder our prayers. It's the idea that if, if, I, if I'm not right 
on the horizontal, how can, how can I expect to be right in the vertical? Because if, if I pray to God and ask him to forgive me, but yet I don't want to forgive my fellow brother or sister, uh, then it's, there's hypocrisy in my prayer. So if you're going to stand praying and you hold anyone, anything against anyone, forgive him or her so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And verse 27 says that they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Probably referring to the day before, driving out the money changers and what have you. By what authority are you doing these things, And they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Now Jesus replies here in typical rabbinical form because he's going to answer a question with a question. So he says, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? And if we say from men... They feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, wimps, we don't know. And Jesus said, this is brilliant. Well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Isn't that great? It's just, you know, in other words, listen, what if, by what authority was John the Baptist doing these things that he did? Because John the Baptist received his authority from the same place I received my authority, and if you can't recognize the authority by which John the Baptist did what he did, you will not re- believe and receive and accept the authority by which I do what I do. And so they give this wimpish answer. We don't really know, because they feared the people, and they also didn't do what John the Baptist said, so they, they wanted to try to thread the needle here. We don't know. Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Chapter 12, he then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent, servant, he sent a servant to the tenants and to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then they sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So he's speaking to the, these chief priests, teachers of the law, the elders who they've come to, you know, by what authority are you doing these things? And then Jesus launches into this parable, which was a teaching tool. And he is, in fact, talking about them. This is this, this parable here about a, a man who planted a vineyard. Now, the vineyard is representative of Israel. And you don't need to turn, but in the margin of your Bible, you can write down Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. This is what it says. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. 
He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Listen, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So when Jesus teaches this parable here in Mark 12, they would have known because of Isaiah 5 that in fact the vineyard does represent Israel. And in the story, Jesus talks about how a man who planted the vineyard, God planted the nation of Israel and then sent some servants into the the vineyard to tend it. And yet they killed the servants. Those would be the prophets until finally the owner of the vineyard sends his son And that represents Jesus himself, and he speaks in advance of his own crucifixion. They're going to take him, and they're going to kill him. And so there's going to be judgment for those who have rejected the Son. And that's why then Jesus quotes again from Psalm 118 about the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and the Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. And this just infuriates them because they know that he's talking about them, and they look for a way to arrest him. But again, they're afraid of the people. They know that if they arrest Jesus, he's still popular right now. This is before they're going to turn on him and want him to be crucified. And because he's popular, these leaders here, these these religious leaders don't want to, uh, you know, incite a riot here. And so they don't arrest him, but they look for a way uh, later. And, uh, And so let's read the next section before we run out of time here. But verse 13 says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, notice this here because in this last week of Jesus' life, when he goes here to Jerusalem and he teaches here as a rabbi, and he's respected here and people listen to him, These religious leaders who don't like him, don't believe in him, don't accept him as Messiah, are always looking for ways to discredit him. And uh, and the Pharisees, it says here in verse 13, team up with the Herodians. And normally those two would never have been pals because the Herodians were loyal to Rome. They believed in paying taxes. They believed that you could have, you know, kind of this one foot in the world and one foot in, in, in the church, so, so to speak. And so the Herodians were very loyal to Rome. Very, their allegiance was to the Roman Empire, not the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very much, you know, strict, orthodox, religious. We don't want anything to do with Rome. We see them as the bad guy and idolaters for sure. And yet they team up because they want to try to trap Jesus. And the first thing they do is they try to butter Jesus up, don't they? Jesus, we know that you're a man of integrity. Oh, yes. Because you don't, you don't mind what other people say or do. You're just a man unto yourself. And we admire that about you. Oh, we do. And then they ask this ridiculous question about taxes. Is it right to pay taxes? Now, the Pharisees and Herodians are both sides of the argument. They're on opposite ends. 
Heronians are going to think, yeah, it's the right to pay taxes. And if you say it's not right to pay taxes, well, that's insurrection against the Roman Empire, and we're going to turn you in. On the other hand, if Jesus says it's, it's right to pay taxes, the Heronians are going to be happy, the Pharisees are going to be mad. And so what does Jesus do here? Well, it says, verse, uh, middle of verse 15, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. That's a coin of the day. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait, or literally whose image, it's the Greek word icon, whose image, whose portrait is this, and whose inscription, Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. I mean, the wisdom of our Lord in this moment. So he takes a coin and he says, well, isn't Caesar's image on this? Yeah, okay. Well, then give this to Caesar. Go ahead, pay your taxes. And look, you know, as, as, even though we don't like how exorbitant our taxes get and we don't like paying taxes, you know, taxes are a part of living in the land that we love. And so we pay taxes as American citizens here. And, 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 you know, in Romans 13, it says, no authority has been given unto man except that which God has established. And so government is an authority that God has established. And like, like it or not, and we can argue about taxes and, you know, and the way it's, absconded from us or whatever you want to, but taxes are a necessary part. And, and Jesus enforces that. You, you, you want to live in the land, you're going to have to pay taxes to Caesar. However, it's the next part here that's an important part that often gets overlooked. Because it's more than just Jesus saying, you know, paying taxes is a valid thing. If you want to live in that country, you need to pay taxes. He said, whose image is on the coin? Well, it's Caesar's. Well, then render unto Caesar. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But given to God, what is God's? In other words, the coin bears the image of Caesar, so give it to Caesar. But who bears the image of God? You do. In Genesis chapter 1, God created mankind in His image and in His likeness. The Hebrew word for image is salem. It means essential nature. The essential nature of God is within you. Because human beings are the only ones who are made in three, as God is one God, but Three in persons. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. And you and I are one person, but we have body, soul, and spirit. We are made in the image of God, and the spirit that we have distinguishes us from all the rest of creation. No other thing that God has created was created in His image besides the human race. Because we bear His image and His likeness in that we have a spirit. And that spirit will live forever and is able to commune with Him in ways that the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom cannot. You and I have the ability to live forever because our spirit will go to be with the Lord if we know Christ is our Savior. And He has created us in His image. But the point that He's saying here is, listen, if the coin bears the image of Caesar, then you need to give it to Caesar. But if you bear the image of God, you need to give your life to God because you belong to Him. That's important for us because all of us belong to God. But we have to make a conscious decision that we will choose to give our life to Him. That even as Jesus lays down His life on a cross for our sins, then He invites us, now make a decision to offer your life in surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you bear the image of God, and your Creator wants to have relationship with you. Now, do you? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Because if you don't, the invitation is still yours. God the Creator 
designed you in His image. And what He wants is you to give your life to Him, to surrender your life to His Lordship so that your sins might be forgiven and that you might have the hope of heaven when you die. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give your life unto God because you bear His image. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know